You're listening to Matt Walsh on demand. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. I call myself a partier. One of my main things is partying. So even though I'm a rock and roll musician, I really just consider myself someone who is celebrating life. I hope you can appreciate the spirit of that. It is not to take life lightly. I don't look at partying as an escape, actually, uh, at all from life, but as a way deeper in. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. are just crazy uh thanks for listening by the way thank you for 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 tuning in matt walsh podcast uh matt walsh on demand i I don't know what to call it i call it both things and and uh however much time you spend here listening even if it's just you click on and you're already clicking off right now because you're tired of listening to it that's you know what i am unworthy and undeserving of that investment of your time so i want to thank you for that I, i want to discuss some some issues around this garland terrorist attack uh that happened down in texas in response to a, a free speech event. I want, I want to talk about that. But first, there's been some interesting discussions on the old social media uh, on the Facebook this week. And sometimes, you know, we talk about serious things and then other times not quite so serious. So it's been it's been sort of fascinating this week. There, there, there have been two things that I've posted that weren't even my own blog post, just kind of a, a link to a news story. And then I would write a little, you know, just a couple paragraphs on Facebook, and, and, and there have been two instances of that this week that have generated more comments and more interaction because, you know, you can follow the Facebook metrics, how many people are interacting with it and liking, commenting, sharing, whatever. There have been two things that have generated more, way above average interaction. And the first was a story about the royal baby. And I sort of asked, uh, why are people in America so obsessed with the royal family. It's sort of, it's sort of um, curious, isn't it, that the people in America are so obsessed with it? And if you talk to people across the pond overseas, they are not nearly as sidetracked and obsessed with the royal family as we are here. We care more about it than they do. And you would think that, that of all the countries on the planet that would be obsessed with the royal family... And fascinated by it, it we, we would be the last ones on that list because we fought an entire war, like a, like a whole war we fought to, to get away from the royal family, didn't we? We weren't so much trying to get away from tabloid stories about the royal family as we were trying to get away from uh, tyranny. But, and now the tyranny isn't, isn't really there because they're a figurehead. Uh, they don't have any actual power. But you would think that we would say to each other, man, we're so over that. We are so past that. It's like we've got our own thing going on here in America. We've got a democracy, allegedly. And so we are, we're going to concentrate more on that. But, but instead, I mean, how do you think George Washington feels? How do you think George Washington and Thomas Jefferson who wrote the, the Declaration of Independence, how do you think they feel right now when they're looking at us and uh, every time something happens with the royal family, we're like, oh, a royal baby. This is exciting. Oh, a royal marriage. Oh, isn't it so amazing? Oh, the royal family, they're so elegant and classy. I just love them so much. That's America now. That's my impression of America, collectively. 
And Thomas Jefferson is just looking at this going, what is good? What? Why, why are you? No. No, don't. Don't do that. You don't have to hate them, but I, but I, I mean, this is there. This is the 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 remnants of the tyranny that we escaped from, and now it's just turned into this overblown, incredibly expensive pageant that even a lot of British people think is absurd. And but you no, don't do stop. That's what this is my impression of Thomas Jefferson. This is what he sounded like. Guys, bros, hey, hold up, chill it already, Ch- chill out with the with the royal family stuff, and uh, but anyway, so I you know I I was just kind of lightly teasing people for um, being obsessed with the royal family, and it's just a thousand comments of I mean it's depressing because it is depressing because. There are times when I work really hard to write something and I take days to write a, you know, a, my opinion about some issue. And uh, sometimes it's rewarded with a lot of uh, uh, interaction. And then other times people are like, oh, yeah, whatever. And then and then and then uh, so I take five minutes to go, oh, royal family. What's the deal with that, guys? And then it's like a thousand comments of people who want to talk about it. It's just, uh, you know, it's a little it's a little depressing. It just is, you know, it just is because when you're in, um, and, and I hate to say that I'm in the media, I'm, I'm in the media, uh, but I guess I am in the media to, to a certain extent, you know, new media, I guess I'm in the, in the media and anyone who is in this field, uh, knows that despite what people say, despite what they say, uh, the truth is it's, it's really hard to get people to care about important things. And everyone says, like, if you go up to the average person on the street and you're, you're, you're doing a survey or a poll and you say, you know, what are the issues in the nation that are most important to you? What, what, what national issues are you really concerned about? And they'll come back with some really nice sounding answer. You know, they'll say, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, perplexed about the national debt. That's what I, I go to sleep worrying about the debt. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm concerned about. You know, you're doing exit polls for an election. What what are you worried about? Well, the the economy. I'm worried about the economy and foreign policy. But when it comes down to it, most people aren't don't care about that stuff. They they really don't. They they don't take time out of the day to read about it or 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 think about it. They just don't. And and anyone who who is in media knows that because when you offer that sort of content, people are like, yeah, I don't care. I mean, I care. I care in theory. So, you know, I'll give you a hearty nod of the head and say, hey, good for you for, yeah, writing about that. Okay. And then they go off and, and uh, wait for someone to talk about the royal baby. That's just the way it works. Okay. And everyone knows it. So, um, anyway, I go back to saying that it's a little depressing. The second thing, though, and this was not depressing because this was, in fact, a profoundly important issue. Um, I, I wrote about anti-beard bigotry, which is a... a, a a disease that has infected this nation for many years and one that I've been, uh, frankly, on the forefront of fighting against. I have been out on the front lines uh, fighting for equal beard rights um, or equal rights for, for bearded people. And I've, and I've been on this side of the fence whether I have a beard or not. There have been times when I've had a beard, times when I don't. I have a beard right now. But whether I have a beard or not, I've always been out there saying, hey, you know, bearded people... Uh, or mustachioed people, or people with goatees, people with Fu Manchus, or people with side whiskers, or 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 people with any kind of mustache, whether it's a, a handlebar mustache or a, 
or a more traditional mustache or even mutton chops. You know, any, uh, facial-haired individuals deserve to be respected and deserve uh, equal protection under the law. I, I've been saying that for years. It's one of the most important things that I've been talking about. And I think I was one of the first to point out that it's, in fact, been over 100 years since we've had a president with facial hair. So everyone, everyone keeps discussing, oh, we need a, a female president. Um, no, I think what we need to go back to is a president with facial hair. And if it happens to be a bearded woman president, well, I'm okay with that. That's better than nothing. But anyway, there was this, sto- this story, this supposed scientific study about how beards are uh, commonly coated in fecal matter. And every day there's like another study about how something has fecal matter. Ah, did you know your toothbrush is covered in poop or your keyboard or your cell phone or... Well, that probably actually is covered in poop because people take it in the bathroom. Everyone does it. But it's always just every day it's a new, uh, your baby is covered in poop, you know, your toaster. But the latest thing was, oh, they found fecal matter in a lot of guys' beards. And, of course, then other studies have come out in the last few days debunking that and saying that's nonsense, it's not true. Um, But I just made a few points about how this is another piece of propaganda in the never-ending campaign against facial hair. And, uh, again, this was something that that sparked sparked a heated discussion, which that I'm not complaining about. That's good. I'm glad that it did. It, It needed to. This is something that we need to talk about. And, of course, you had people that were offended by my... Offended by my pro-beard uh, feelings. And I made a few comments about beardless individuals. And uh, obviously you had to have the people that took it really seriously and got offended. Um, I'll just give you a few examples of comments. Just just the first few that pop up. Uh, there was, I think it was Gene who says, uh, Mr. Matt Walsh, please reconsider your categorical emasculation of those of us men who are required to remove facial hair due to career choices. For men in the fields of law enforcement and firefighting, not to mention the armed forces, removal of facial hair is not only in most cases a requirement, it is a downright matter of personal safety. I think these men are far from effeminate or childlike. I challenge you to speak to the men in our military and ask them what kind of makeup they wear. I bet the responses you receive will not be unmanly. At least include a disclaimer exempting those of us who would rather sport pubic hair on our faces than not from your tongue-in-cheek humor. Besides, I think it is strangely two-faced of you to admonish others to not judge how a man cares for his beard, but then you judge men on why they choose to beard or not to beard. (laughs) And this was because I made a joke about how uh, all unbearded men, men without beards, uh, wear makeup. And there are people that thought I literally, that uh, thought that was an actual accusation. That I actually think all men without beards are effeminate, childlike, and have, wear makeup. Then you had Sherry who says, Assuming all men without facial hair wear makeup is just stupid. You might want to take a quick look at most of the military. Your remark is just ridiculous and arrogant. Or, sorry, ignorant. Brittany says, Nice, using the Bible to fit your own agenda. There are professions who do not allow beards. Military, for instance. My husband, a firefighter, being one of them. I'm sure he's just a man as you are and has probably helped more people with his hands than you have with your mostly bigoted words. Good day, Mr. Walsh. Now, I... Uh, and this is, again, this is because I made a joke about men who don't have beards wear makeup. And, and, and in fairness, by the way, the, the, uh, the majority of the actual military personnel who responded got the joke and were laughing about it and agreed, actually. They wished that they could grow a beard, you know, but they, but they, but they can't um, for... for uh, because of, uh, you know, hygiene regulations or whatever. 
And, and, and just so you understand, this, this is the, the, uh, just what, what I, part of what I wrote, that the, the offensive part, uh, talking about this uh, study you know, with fecal matter in the beard. I said, uh, did they measure their results against the control group to see how much fecal matter is plastered against the smooth, effeminate, childlike skin of a clean-shaven man? Even if beardless males have no fecal matter on their face, I guarantee you'd probably find tea tree oil facial moisturizer, glitter, and blush because I assume all men without facial hair wear makeup. And then I went on to admit that I actually have an extensive moisturizing routine because I have sensitive skin. Um, but and I, just, I want to get inside the mind of a person who reads that and thinks it's serious and gets offended. I, just, I want to be inside the, the very literal mind of an individual who, who reads that and thinks, Oh my God, this person really thinks that all people without beards wear makeup. How dare you? How dare you? I just I want to be inside that person's mind, and just one other thing that I thought was uh, <laughs> that I thought was pretty funny. It's it's worth noting that the uh, early fathers of the church had uh, very strong feelings about beards, and so when I'm looking to antagonize, sometimes I like to go and find these these quotes. Um, here's one from Saint Augustine who said, "The beard signifies the courageous." The beard distinguishes the grown men, the earnest, the active, the vigorous. So that when we describe such, we say, he is a bearded man. That's, um, so that was St. Augustine. And then there was uh, Clement, uh, Clement of Alexandria, who, who, who wrote in, uh, around, I think, uh, in the 2nd or 3rd century, who said, it is therefore impious to desecrate the symbol of manhood, which is hairiness, but the embellishment of smoothing, for I am warned, warned by the word. If it is to attract men, is the act of an effeminate person. If to attract women, is the act of an adulterer. And both must be driven as far as possible from our society. For an ample beard suffices for men. And if one, too, shave a part of his beard, it must not be made entirely bare. For this is a disgraceful sight. The shaving of the chin to the skin is reprehensible. So he just called beardless men adulterous, reprehensible, disgraceful, impious, effeminate homosexuals who should be shunned from society and ostracized. That's, so you know what? Don't shoot the messenger. That's what, that's what our early church fathers, that, that's what they thought. That's, that, that, those, that's how they felt. Um, so in comparison, in comparison, my words were downright reasonable. All right, but let's uh, move on to, to an actual serious discussion. Um, there was this incident down in Garland, Texas, um, that I'm, I'm sure you heard about, although you're, you're, you heard about it for a day and now you're not hearing about it quite as much anymore, depending on the media sources you choose. Because in, in this day and age, uh, two Muslims in America recruited by ISIS, an international terrorist organization, to go and uh, commit a terrorist attack against a free speech event in Texas, that is not necessarily, that's headline news for like a day. But, it, but not any more than that. Now, if, if there were more dead bodies, um, then let's say they'd actually succeeded and killed 12 people. Well, well then, then maybe you'd get three or four days uh, in the headlines about that. But they didn't. Um, the only dead bodies to come out of this attack, th- thankfully, uh, uh, fortunately, were the terrorists themselves. Because this is Texas we're talking about. So these terrorists showed up. Body armor, automatic weapons. Uh, these were two guys recruited by ISIS. 
to attack this this event. And uh, I know you heard about it, but obviously this is the free speech event in Texas, um, hosted by Pam Geller. And part of the part of the event, well, the overall idea was to you know celebrate free speech, stand for free speech. But part of the event was was a draw Muhammad contest. And so cartoonists were encouraged to draw pictures of Muhammad, and then the best picture was awarded um, ten thousand dollars. So this is in America. Um, if this was if this was an event in Iran or Saudi Arabia, then I think we would not be surprised at all to find out that it that it ended in violence. But this was in America, and and unfortunately, even in America, we're, we're not surprised to find that it ended in violence. Um, two terrorists show up, and they've got automatic weapons and body armor, but they are quickly dispatched by one traffic cop with a pistol which is which is really incredible actually i mean pardon the french here but if you want to talk about a badass that's that's a a traffic cop pulling out his pistol and get rid of two bad guys with uh with automatic weapons and body armor and he did it in like 20 seconds you know just boom it's over but that doesn't mean that it's not still a huge story and there are some people that agree it's a huge story but they think the story is not the fact that Muslims showed up and attacked this event, it's that these Islamophobic individuals uh, put on the event in the first place, and how dare they with their hate speech and everything else. In fact, if you, if you feel like taking a particularly depressing trip down uh, Google Lane, you can find many articles and editorials symp- sympathizing with the Garland terrorists. Uh, there was one in the Daily Beast that was especially appalling, it was uh, written by Randy Potts, who, who said that um, last night in Garland, you could say there was a meeting of extremes and resulting from that engagement, two deaths. Now, that's a heck of a sentence. In the span of about 20 words, he compared people who say and draw offensive things to people who buy guns and try to kill people over the offensive words and drawings. All right. And then, so he just compared the two things. You've got, you've got guys with guns looking to kill people on one side. On the other side, you have people drawing things. So he compared those two, and then he went on to hang the guilt for the attempted murder equally around the necks of both. He said, from that engagement, two deaths. From that engagement, two deaths. But, you know, the deaths were not the result of an engagement. They were the result of choices made by two Islamic radicals. And if you want to dig deeper and disperse the blame among a wider crowd, you should probably go in the opposite direction and figure out why the Muslim faith drives this sort of hatred and violence. That's the direction you want to go. You don't want to go deeper into the potential victims here and think, well, why did they provoke this attack? No, it's why does the Muslim faith consistently why is the muslim faith provo- no that's the thing the muslim faith is provoking the violence not the cartoons yet of course that conversation cannot happen can it um because as our country becomes more progressive it becomes less and less willing to look honestly at islam and even less willing to criticize its shortcomings and i i think on the surface this seems kind of mysterious, doesn't it? Because progressives are, are absolutely giddy anytime they have the slightest reason to accuse Christians of homophobia, uh, accuse us of sexism, bigotry, uh, or, or anything else. And here with Islam, we have a religion that, that is suppressed and murdered millions of women 
millions of women, gays, and ethnic and religious minorities across the globe have been suppressed, oppressed, murdered, persecuted through Islam. And so you would think that they would be, as progressives, considering how they treat Christianity, that they would be tripping over each other, just, just, just rushing, rushing like, like, Black Fr- like a Black Friday sale. They would be tripping over each other to grab a metaphorical rock from the metaphorical pile and start chucking them right at Islam's face, just like they do to Christianity. But that's not how it works, is it? It doesn't go that way. And, and why is that? This is one of the great mysteries of of Western society is the the disparity in the way Islam and Christianity are treated. And so how do you explain the disparity? I think, uh, well, they're afraid, sure. That explains it partially. Cowardice. Liberals know they can criticize Christians relentlessly and for the pettiest reasons, and they never have to worry about being assaulted, stabbed, shot, or decapitated for it. Uh, They know that. They know they can say or do whatever they want to Christians and they will never suffer violence. And in fact, they, they might not even suffer criticism um, or protest. But with Islam, as we've discovered time and time again, the most tepid critique can, can send you six feet under. And of course, progressives recognize that, realize it. And so I'm sure that's part of the, that's part of the calculation, I'm sure. Part of their, part of their um, consideration is that, oh, if I say this, I might die. But I think there's even more to it than that. Um, I, there probably doesn't need to be more to it than that, but there is. There is because... Hold on. Okay. Having desk troubles. Uh, there is because Western progressives appear to, to not just be... It's not like they're containing their contempt for fundamentalist Islam. They're not, they're not containing it. I don't get that impression. It's not like they're brimming with with anger, but they, but they just have to hold it in because they're so cowardly. They're not, that's not the case. They're containing, if anything, their admiration for it. Liberalism is not a defender of, um, an apologist for radical Islam just because they have a gun to their head, although they do. They're a defender and apologist for it because at least, at least from my vantage point, they seem to really appreciate it. So it's deeper than fear. They actually, there's something about it that they like. I mean, you take Barack Obama as just a perfect example. The six years in, it's quite obvious that Obama does sympathize with uh, so-called radical Islam. He doesn't just sympathize with them. I mean, he's gone throughout the Middle East and Egypt, uh, Libya, Syria, and he equips them, arms them, trains them. He's, he's not just a, a sympathetic to them. He's an ally of theirs. I think some of Obama's critics have wrongly said, oh, well, that means he's a secret Muslim. No, he's not, because he's also progressive. I I think he really believes in progressive tenets. Unlike, say, Hillary Clinton, who I think is a ruthless, murderous pragmatist, which which is actually worse, um, if that's possible. Obama actually believes some of this stuff. So how is it then? How is it that you've got guys like Obama and so many other progressives who... Uh, are progressive, but at the same time are sympathetic of and advocates for militant Muslims. So there is, and when I think about this, so far as I can tell, there's one similarity between a militant Muslim and a militant American liberal. There's one similarity, and it explains this, this strange partnership. 
which I think is mostly one-sided. Because the militant Muslim would kill the militant American liberal in a second if they had the chance. But the militant American liberal stands there kind of in awe of them, like an idiot. And I think that it's because of this one similarity. They both hate Christians. That's it. Um, That's it. You might also say they, they hate America, but as Obama has explained many times, progressivism seeks to fundamentally transform America, not outright destroy it. And you could say, well, transforming it is destroying it. And I would basically agree. But from their perspective, they want to remake America in their image. And they've succeeded in large part. But Christianity, they have no use for at all. Progressivism and fundamentalist Islam, they want Christianity gone. They want it erased. They want it demolished. They don't want any part of it. And this is no surprise. Christianity, and this is something that Christians would do well to understand, Christianity is the central focus, not just of Christians, but of mankind. Um, we have the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was the central moment in, uh, in, in human history. And, and we orient ourselves uh, based on it, whether explicitly or implicitly. We orient ourselves by our relationship to it and our view of it, right? That's what all people do. That's what all mankind does. So Christ is the sun at the center, not just of our solar system, but of of the entire universe. The sun, S-O-N, and uh, in this metaphor, S-U-N. And I think it was was either Chesterton or C.S. Lewis, the famous quote. I think it was Lewis, in paraphrasing the the famous quote, where he says, I believe in in Christianity – like I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because because by it, I see everything else. So Christ is the sun at the center. And if you want to be Christian, then you have to stay within the light of the sun so that you can see everything. But if you want to stay in the dark, then you have to live your whole life trying to avoid the light. So you're living in darkness. But still, your movements, your decisions are based on the sun. You know, only in this case, on avoiding it. So we either oppose Christianity or we embrace it or we look for some middle ground of which there is none to be found. But no matter which path we choose, it becomes the very thing that defines us. Christianity does. Christianity defines everybody. Um, and in my study and observance of American liberalism, this is the only explanation I've found that makes any sense. It's it's It's... You know, when you, when you talk about, well, what does the American liberal want? What are they after? What, what drives them? And you find a lot of contradiction and a lot of changing course and a lot of confusion. But the only common thread that ties together all of its seemingly contradictory values and ideas is this. That whatever else he wants, a progressive wants to do the opposite of what Christianity says. Christianity is an oppressive and tyrannical force to him. And so he dedicates himself to being its anti, its opposition. That's it. That's all progressivism is. It's that and uh, sort of by extension, you know, progressive. uh, Progressivism could be defined this way. Um, It's the belief that Christianity is bad and that we should be able to have sex with whoever we want. That that's pretty much it. And that's, and that's pretty much the only re that's the reason why uh, progressives 
um, hate Christianity and define their entire existence by opposing Christianity because Christianity to them is this oppressive and tyrannical force trying to control the, who they have sex with and the manner in which they have sex and trying to put some constraints and some definitions around their sexual activity. And so Christianity is seen as something that constricts the sexual act uh, and therefore it, is, it must be destroyed uh, because that's what progressivism is. It's all about sex in the end and really nothing else. And whereas Islam, it's not that, obviously, because Islam puts even tighter c- controls around sex. But for Islam, uh, the, the militant Muslims, they see Christianity as the one thing, uh, the one main thing stopping people from falling down and worshiping the false god of Allah. And they're right about that, actually. And progressives are sort of right in that Christianity does recognize Uh, that there's a moral nature to the sexual act, but they're wrong that Christianity wants to tamper, tamper with, or take the fun out out of sex, because that's not the case at all. Progressivism has taken the fun out of sex by turning it into this depressed, uh, lifeless, disease-ridden thing. That's, That's what progressivism has done. Christianity sees that, uh, the, the sexual act is so important and beautiful and joyful that it should be protected and it should be uh, it, it shouldn't be treated as, as something frivolous because it isn't. So where, where Christianity has answers and where Christianity has reasons and light, progressivism has none of that. Progressivism has protest, uh, contradiction, confusion. But, but that's it. It has no answers on its own, so it looks at Christianity and says, well, we'll just do the opposite of that. It, it wants to tear down the culture Christianity built and create a new one. But not because their new one is better, just because it's different, because it's unchristian. And that's why liberals refuse to see Islam as an enemy, because it isn't an enemy in their view. It is uh, their greatest ally in their greatest mission, which is to destroy Christianity. What they don't realize is that if that mission were ever accomplished, which it won't be, can't be, but if it were, you know, let's say, let's say we lived in an impossible universe where Christianity could actually be eradicated. Well, then guess what takes its place? Islam. And guess what, progressives? You're in much worse, worse shape than you were before. Christianity was trying to help you and show you the light and bring you to a life that's actually joyful and fulfilling, and now radical uh, Islam will come in and just kill you. So, hey, congratulations. Good for you. But, as I said, the mission is ultimately doomed uh, to fail. It, it, it can't succeed. But they found a friend in this fruitless endeavor. And um, you just, you certainly can't expect them to criticize their friends. And that's what it comes down to. That's why, that's why progressives are apologists for Islam. And as long as Christianity exists, which it always will, that won't change. And that's just, that's just how it is. All right, that's, uh, I'm going to wrap it up there. So thanks for listening. I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Facebook.com slash Matt Walsh blog, at Matt Walsh blog. Talk to you later. Akruche Salus. Godspeed.